All right. Hello, and welcome to the Middle East Forum Speaker Webinar Series and Podcast. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Raymond Ibrahim, a Judith Friedman Rosen Fellow at the Middle East Forum and a fellow at the David Horowitz Freedom Center and Gatestone Institute, join us to discuss Christians who defended the West from Islamic conquest, based on his latest book, Defenders of the West. Mr. Ibrahim will be speaking for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Raymond Ibrahim. Thank you. Um, the book that I recently wrote on the topic of discussion, uh, the title of which is Defenders of the West, is um, it's impossible to even start talking about it without connecting it to its predecessor, its previous book, uh, Sword and Scimitar, 14 Centuries of War Between Islam and the West. That book was focused on uh, the eight major pivotal decisive battles between the Islamic world and what we today call the West, which historically was Europe. Um, and uh, it showed you the progressive change actually on the map. So for example, all of North Africa and the Middle East was a heavy Christian majority with a large uh, also Jewish minority. It was, but it was more Christian than Europe itself. And you could see in just the first um, century after Muhammad's death between 632 and 732, the Battle of Tours, all of North Africa and the Middle East was swallowed up. And then of course you have different manifestations later. You have the Turks who come in and uh, they take Anatolia or Asia Minor, becomes Turkey today. Spain, of course, was conquered for centuries. And, um, and, uh, and, when, and even in, in the book, it explains as many people are unaware, but these Islamic sort of jihadist attacks went on in perpetuity, including reaching as far as Iceland in the 16th century. Denmark, um, and of course, America's first war as a nation was against Muslims, the Barbary Wars, where Jefferson met with the uh, ambassador from Barbary and the ambassador's reply as to why the, the, the Muslims of Barbary were attacking American sailors and enslaving them was straight out of ISIS's playbook, basically said, we are called to do jihad, you're an infidel, Allah and our prophet command us of us, et cetera, et cetera. So that was sort of scimitar. Um, the book did well, and actually this new book, Defenders of the West, was uh, the idea was brought to me by the publisher himself, uh, or themselves, Bombardier, and I thought it was a good idea. So what I did with this book was somewhat similar, and that's why I say it complements very much Sword and Scimitar, but instead of focusing on eight decisive battles, I focused on what I refer to as eight decisive men. Um, so it's a more personalized view of what happened in, in, the, in that same time frame, essentially, and in the same theaters of war, uh, the three of them basically being in the Holy Land, in Spain, and in the Balkans, all different iterations of Islamic jihadist aggression, of course. In the Balkans, you have the Ottomans primarily. In Spain, you have what were called the Moors, uh, Muslims, of course. And in the Holy Land, you have uh, a number of different sultans and caliphs. Um, at any rate, uh, the, the, one of the main, I guess, takeaways that I'm bringing out in this book, and which is it, which is what it is. It's not something that I tried to posit. It's there itself, which was, it just shows you the difference between Christianity and how it was what one would refer to, or as Daniel Pipes referred to, is a muscular religion. And um, uh, actually, I refer to it as that, but he mentions that in his uh, blurb to the book. And I think that's a good good place to sort of start, because it just shows you that 
while there was a massive assault on Europe um, during these uh, centuries, the Christians of that time, unlike let's say today's Christians, were not passive, were not worried about offending someone's feelings, were not worried about being politically correct, were not worried about stepping on anyone's toes, and they fought tooth and nail. Um, and if they had not, of course, everything would have changed. In fact, to really underscore what I'm saying, unless it seem that I'm making this all up, uh, there's a really nice quote I, I'll read from uh, U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt, who himself was no mean historian. And uh, this is what he wrote. He wrote, quote, Christianity was saved in Europe solely because the peoples of Europe fought. If the peoples of Europe in the 7th and 8th centuries on, on up to and including the 17th century had not possessed a military equality with and gradually a growing superiority over the Mohammedans who invaded Europe, Europe would at this moment be Mohammedan and the Christian religion would be exterminated. Whenever the Mohammedans have had complete sway, wherever the Christians have been unable to resist them by the sword, Christianity has ultimately disappeared. So uh, that's really the main takeaway. Even the, uh, the, the book's entire epigraph, uh, which I chose because I think it best characterizes the book, comes from the Hebrew scriptures, uh, specifically Proverbs 25, 26, which reads, quote, like a trampled spring and polluted well is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. So um, I wanted to document that that's sort of how Europeans, like all peoples really, uh, saw their civilization. They tried to defend it, irrespective of preaching about meekness or turning the other cheek or any of that sort of thing, which was understood in its own context. Um, the, the stories of these various men, I should also add, are very in and of themselves. So one of the other reasons I could argue that the book was, I wrote the book is, uh, you know, these are just amazing stories. You know, we're used to watching Hollywood and, you know, these big budget movies, most of which are, are completely fictitious. Um, but in these stories, uh, oftentimes, you know, uh, what, as the saying goes, um, you know, truth is stranger than fiction. The sorts of things that the Muslim invaders and jihadists did, for example, the Ottomans, um, uh, the Ottoman assault on Albania. Let's take that as one example. There's eight chapters, and I talk about eight different men. Uh, the seventh chapter deals with Albania and Skanderbeg, whose uh, real name was George Castriotti. And I'll just give you a quick summary of his story uh, to give you an idea. So like so many nobles, he was born as a noble in Albania, um, but he had to be taken as a hostage at the Ottoman court. He was taken at the age of 10 and all his brothers. I think it was four brothers and himself. His four brothers were killed eventually, and but he rose to the highest ranks and became a janissary. So a janissary, of course, is an Islamic slave soldier. Uh, mostly they were taken from European men in their youth, converted forcibly to Islam, and then uh, became great soldiers because that's uh, they were trained like Spartans essentially, and then let loose on their former kin. So that's what happened with him. And he really raised up in the echelons and, and eventually had something like 5,000 men under his command. And he was very popular, liked by the Sultan. But then when he once he had the chance and he was a grown man, so from the age of 10 till maybe mid twenties or even early thirties, he broke free, ran, ran back to Albania and essentially, you know, he crossed the Rubicon as it were, and and it was just all war between him and the Ottomans who, who assumed, who saw him as a traitor. And in 25 years, they launched assault after assault on Albania. Oftentimes, as you, as anyone who understands, uh, the Ottomans legendary size, uh, the, the armies that are legendary sizes, which is true. So he was often fighting one to 10 odds at best, uh, as far as numbers. So the, 
the Ottomans would marshal 100,000 men and he'd have maybe 10,000 guerrilla fighters. Um, but this went on and persevered for a quarter of a century. And what's interesting and what I document, again, is uh, what I always find interesting is this continuity, which shows you that the Muslims, the Ottomans, the Turks approached the entire thing through the very same lens of, let's say, the Islamic State. And basically, they would tell the Albanians and everyone else in Europe, um, you have three choices. You're either pay a submission, a BSB in submission, pay tribute, jizya, um, or convert, of course, which they didn't, or fight. And, and those were the three um, alternatives offered to Albania and others. And then during the fights, the atrocities committed by the uh, Ottomans are, you know, they beggar description and possibly put ISIS to shame skinning people alive, gouging their eyes, mass gang rapes of women and children, um, you know, lots of horrific stuff, of course, burning of churches and, and, and that sort of thing. So I also find that it's important to document that because we're told, we're told that that's not part of uh, Islam proper, that ISIS has introduced this and that historically caliphates and sultanates did not engage in that sort of behavior. But actually that's what you see and that's what the book demonstrates that the prevalent mentality of the Muslims was that we're attacking you because you're an infidel and you have to be in submission one way or the other and there's no two, no two ways about it. And uh, the battles go on and on. And so that's uh, so one can only imagine, you know, with, with Skanderberg, what a great movie that would make, for example. Uh, and he lived until old age fighting and, and until he finally died in warfare. And once he died, it's interesting. And it actually, again, it emphasizes uh, his stalwart stance against Islam. As we know, Albania today is actually a Muslim majority nation uh, in Europe. And that's because due to his and his men's uh, defiance against Islam for so long, once he was dead um, and Albania came under the Ottoman orbit sphere, uh, there was no more choice about being uh, a Zimmi and paying tribute, or rather it was a very much a coercive uh, and suffocating climate where you better convert because if you are a Vimy, it's gonna be significantly worse and you'll be barely be able to live and you'll be humiliated. And that's actually why Albania of all these European nations around it still has a very large Muslim population. So th there's much that can be said and discussed about all of this. And um, I think, like I said, both these books, they show you sort of the history. It's amazing to me Every day now, when you when you listen to historians um, who talk about Islam and European interactions from a historical level, they always bring it up. It always starts off in a vacuum with the Crusades. Virtually every American has heard about the Crusades, but they don't know what happened four centuries before the Crusades, which was basically Islam invading and attacking Western nations, Christian nations, Europe and uh, Islamizing them. And then finally the Crusades came because right before the Crusades was a particularly horrific um, jihad by the Seljuk Turks in Asia Minor. And they, they, according to the sources, for example, Matthew of Edessa, uh, who's a contemporary, hundreds of thousands of Christians, especially Armenians, were being butchered alive. Uh, when we hear of the Turkish genocide of Armenians, we think of the, 20, the, of the 20th century and the 19th century, late 19th but actually goes back a thousand years earlier. And uh, this is, and they, and they had reached Constantinople, the Muslims, and this is what caused um, Alexius, the emperor, to call on the Pope to start the Crusades. But even after the Crusades, 
Um, you see all these various different attacks, as I mentioned, it goes on and on and on and it never ends reaching to these furthest uh, areas of Western civilization, including, like I said, the United States. So I think it's important to be cognizant of the true history of Islam vis-a-vis -vis not just the West, but all civilizations really that are non-Islamic. And um, basically the fairy tales were being told about a sort of progressive Islam historically and how uh, the jihadists of today have hijacked it. And because, you know, that, that as a first premise, if you believe that Islam was historically peaceful and tolerant, et cetera, then no matter what happens today, no matter how aggressive Muslims may be or scream jihad, you have to, re you have to conclude that something different has happened. Some, something new has happened. There's a new element. That's why they're acting this way, because historically, they were not that way. But if you understand that historically, you know, Islam was <laughs> like ISIS, um, like radical Muslims say it was, then today really does make sense. It just fits perfectly in. It's part of the pattern. It's a continuation. Um, and I think that's what we're seeing. And it's important to be cognizant, as I mentioned, this uh, otherwise distant or forgotten or to some people irrelevant history to understand what, what's really going on today and whether it's an aberration, which it's not, but rather it's a continuation. Uh, and it's best to understand it that way to make sense of things. And with that, I'm happy to take questions. There it is. Sorry, I lost my mouse there. All right, Judith Hirschen asked, uh, what is taught in American universities on this? You, you spoke of a relevant history in that last line there. Has anyone tried to bring the history to the Middle East studies? Um, I'm, I'm understanding the question as basically saying the history that I just uh, laid out, is that being, and uh, no, it's not. It's, uh, of course, I, I, I don't know, and nobody knows what every single professor in every single college is teaching, and I'm sure there's good ones. I know, I personally know some good ones. But the, the overall narrative, the mainstream opinion, just like in everything else today in American society, there's the narrative, which it, you do, it does you well to stick to and not stray from, of course, is that no, Islam was a very great progressive force. And if anything, when it comes to quarrels between the West and Islam, it was always the West's fault. And as the example I gave with the Crusades, they always begin it with the Crusades, which is essentially beginning with a no context um, because they'll, you know, there's actual well-known professors like John Esposito. He says, and I'm, I'm, I'm virtually verbatim quoting him, but basically he says four centuries of peace uh, between Islam and the Western or Europe passed before a uh, papal power play came and the Crusades and the Crusades began and that ruined all the relationships between Muslims and Europeans. And that's why Muslims are still upset. Um, this is, of course, absurd because it completely ignores four centuries of history before the Crusades and almost a millennium of history after the Crusades. Thank you so much. Earl Sim Simones uh, asked, didn't the Muslims live in peace in Spain with other religions? Did they? Is that the question? Uh, yeah, they lived in peace so long as Islamic law was uh, being enforced and Islamic law's understanding is Muslims must be higher than infidels. Infidels means not Muslims. In this case, it would have been Christians and Jews, both of which there were plenty in Spain. Um, in, in some of the actual Spanish legal texts, Islamic legal texts, it would say things like Jews and Christians have to be pushed aside. They have to feel oppressed. Uh, when you collect the jizya, the tribute they have to pay, you should yank them by the beard and humiliate them. 
So yeah, as long as that sort of uh, atmosphere prevailed, I suppose there was peace. But uh, as we know, the Reconquista or the Reconquest, because as I was mentioning, when the Muslims invaded Spain, the traditional date is 711 uh, and conquered it, um, it, it, was, it was Visigothic, it was Christian rule, and they were all pushed up into the northwestern quadrant of the peninsula of Spain and hold up there. And, and, and from that small area, century after century, they started spreading out and uh, reconquering ma massive parts of, um, of Spain. And it's interesting because those who talk about the golden age of Spain and you know uh, how Jews and Christians and Muslims lived in peace, they often ignore the, the massive wars and the upheavals that went, that went on and which brought in in, in, two, in, in, in sequence two very savage Islamic, what we would call today terror groups, the El Moravids and then the El Mohads to give them their sort of anglicized name, which were Berber groups from North Africa that actually dressed like ISIS. They wore black and everything they cared about was jihad and they entered in Spain and all, all sorts of atrocities as you can imagine. But the people talk about a golden age, ignore those centuries, and they focus on uh, Abdul Rahman, the uh, you know the Umayyad Caliphate, which lasted after the Abbasid uh, uh, took over. And but even when you look at his reign and you really scrutinize it, as I have, um, <laughs> they say it was progressive because this is a time when you actually had great architecture and it seems like a fabulous uh, region, Spain. But when you look into it, uh, this is also the time where Christians, for example were tortured, boiled alive, and skinned alive for blaspheming against Muhammad, to give you an idea. Well, that sounds to me like the golden age was something straight out of ISIS's handbook. But again, they ignore and suppress that and focus on grand architecture, opulence, wealth, and learning, which there was. But again, like I said, they suppress the other aspects, which is the humiliation and persecution, discrimination against non-Muslims, Jews and Christians in this case. Understood. An anonymous attendee asks, why is it that the narrative is so slanted? Is it related at all to the funding of think tanks and universities? Well, the narrative got slanted, I think, even before there were think tanks. Uh, it's been slanted since, you know, you can uh, arguably say in the 17th century uh, in Europe. I think a lot of it starts with the, uh, the Protestant uh, Reformation. And with the Protestant Reformation, there was this attempt to break away from anything that was Catholic and also to demonize it and basically say, well, that's bad, we're good. And so, for example, Martin Luther um, preached pacificity against uh, the Ottoman attack um, coming into Europe originally. Uh, for example, when they were encircling Vienna the first time, I believe in 1529, uh, until, of course, the Muslims got close to where he was in, in Germany. And then he said, no, we, it is our right to fight back and so forth. So I think a lot of it has to do with this sort of split between Christian sects and trying to demonize the other and stay away. So the Crusades in that sense, I think were very much demonized to show how crazy and horrible um, the Catholic church was. And for the record, and I emphasize this in the book, I'm, I, in no way, shape or form do I endorse everything that these men or their times represent. I mean, these are not exemplars <laughs> in, all, in all ways, as I express in the book, and I'm just focused on their militant, confident stance against Islamic aggression. Um, so I think it starts the, with the Protestant uh, Reformation, but I do believe, of course, now as you come into the modern era, that it is uh, funding 
uh, it is, you know, these sorts of just, again, it's the narrative. It's a prominent narrative and you can't stray from it. If you do, your livelihood is likely in, in danger, just like with everything else that's happening uh, today. Along those lines, Robert Slater asks, are you banned from many uh, universities as a speaker in the US or Europe because of your views? Yeah, uh, I would say that I, a lot of places that would reach out to me um, and then then later it, it would, they would rescind uh, for no meaningful reason. The most famous one was with the War College. Uh, to recap, I think this was in 2019, and they, I had been invited to speak at the War College um, about Sword and Scimitar, my previous book, which is a military history. So it makes sense that they would a military school wants to hear a military history. And then CARE, of course, found out, got wind, um, started you know, a hysterical petition campaign against me, called the college racist, called me, a man of Egyptian background, racist. And uh, before long, the War College actually rescinded its invitation. But about a year later, because it, made, it got some headlines and petitions and lots of people were involved and you know, apparently the college was getting lots of scathing um, emails, uh, they did reinvite me. Uh, and I actually gave that talk in, uh, in February of 2020. And uh, one of the deals was they were supposed to videotape it and release it. But February 2020, of course, is right at the time of COVID when that came up. And since then, they haven't released it because of COVID. Uh, for some reason, they just haven't been able to get to it because of uh, uh, whatever issues COVID has created for them. But yeah, in general, I've definitely um, been banned and lost my, many other opportunities, actually, because of speaking this way. Oh, sorry to hear that. Um, Mike asks, are we in the beginning years of a new crusade uh, with Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, with any country that is uh, called for jihad on the Western world? A new crusade, as in is the West going to marshal a new crusade against those nations? Oh, I don't think so. <laughs> Not at all. Um, so in the book, in Defenders of the West, uh, the, again, one of the themes is to compare and contrast how those men live their lives vis-a-vis -vis Islamic aggression, how they responded with today. Um, and today, of course, is the exact opposite. Um, you know, the, and again, it's, it, I think it's clothed or garbed oftentimes in Christian virtues. But to me, you know, when you, a lot of people, when they talk about being passive and turning the other cheek, uh, they're basically making um, a virtue out of cowardice. And it's not necessarily because this is their faith. So I think there's a lot of, um, you know, the, the sort of um, general feel amongst Western people, Christians and non-Christians, secularists, everything, I think is, it's just so passive. They don't want to ruffle feathers or be confrontational. Um, and that's why you see what's happening in the world. You know, I mean, look at what happened in Afghanistan. That's just, uh, it's still amazing that after all that, you know, 20 or over 20 years, and, and fighting Islamic terrorists. Everyone knew the Taliban were Islamic terrorists, no less than Al-Qaeda. And you know, they have the same exact ideology. And then to just after that, throw it all away and uh, all that blood and treasure. And then here we go again, there's still the Taliban is still in power, still doing what they've been doing, always terrorizing people, engaging in terrorism. And uh, when you think, what's also amazing is if you compare the West's actual strength vis-a-vis -vis Islam, economic strength, military strength, there's no contest. Whereas in the history that I discuss, oftentimes the Islamic world was much more militarily and economically powerful and larger than Europe. Um, and, they, and they resisted tooth and nail. 
And so it's interesting to see today that now the West is so much more powerful, and yet it's being terrorized by, you know, essentially weak civilization. Um, and that's because it's being enabled. Uh, you, you know, you look at some of these European nations like Sweden, which, I mean, when you, look, when you see what, what the Muslim population is doing there, it's become essentially the rape capital. Rape has jumped up something like 1,500%, and crime has jumped up something like 3,000% um, since uh, Muslim migrants have started coming in there. You realize, well, it's not because it's not because these are Muslims coming with spears and swords, uh, you know, screaming Allah Akbar as they did historically, and uh, you know, either conquering or being rebuffed. These are people who are being brought in, and anyone who criticizes this, he's the bad one. And then they engage in the sorts of things they do. There's enclaves all over Europe. Uh, you know, you had the the grooming scandal in England, uh, Rotherham, I believe. Same same sorts of things are happening in Germany. But you look at other countries in Eastern Europe, for example, and they have no problem because they don't allow, let's say, Islamic migration. Um, uh, so, so my point is, uh, obviously, so much can be done, but Western civilization in general seems to be so demoralized and just pacified um, that, you know, it, it, any, anything can be done. So much can be done. I'm not even referring to military, using military might. That isn't even necessary. Um, because America and the West is, are that strong, but they just don't. And it makes one wonder why, and, and, and more to the point, it's not that they don't do anything. They are the ones who are creating this problem by, for example, bringing in millions of migrants and so forth. Thank you. Uh, Len asks, it seems today many Christian religious groups support Islamic organizations. Are Islamists today less antagonistic against Christians than they were years ago? And Andrea Spindel follows up, what is the political view of the Global Imam Council in regards to other faiths? Well, uh, that's the first question. Absolutely. There's a lot of, uh, you know, this sort of ecumenicism going on, which is, uh, and it's best typified to me by Pope Francis, who just constantly likes to reach out and meet with uh, Muslims, particularly the Egyptian Grand Imam um, of Al-Azhar University, Ahmed Al-Ahmed, Sheikh Al-Ahmed, Sheikh uh, Ahmed Al-Tayyib. And, uh, and just to give you an idea, because I'm, I can read and I watch Arabic videos of the Sheikh, but he'll meet with the Pope and they'll send out these grand you know, statements about brotherly love between Muslims and Christians and Jews, because all, all the religions will meet up together. Most recently in Dubai, they had an actual large conference, um, and 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 they'll say all these sorts of things that sound good, and the sheikh will sign his name. But then, if you listen to him talking in Egypt or to Muslims in general, and his his actual fatwas, they're pretty radical. Uh, he's on record saying, if you're an apostate, you should basically be punished um, with a suggestion of death. And that's main. That's of course mainstream Islamic teaching. He's on record saying, uh, you know, anyone who blasphemes should be uh, also punished, and so forth. Um, so any, anything he would not, he won't denounce the Islamic State, ISIS, and say they're not Islamic. Uh, he refuses to say that. He say, well, maybe they're they're wayward, but I can't say they're not Islamic because as long as they profess the shahada, then they're Islamic. So you know, again, it's very very two faced, and it's unfortunate because the Christians who do this sort of thing and reach out and try to have an ecumenical relationship with Muslims um, basically are naive and uh, they're being duped. Uh, and it's very, very obvious, uh, like I said, when you, especially on, in these high profile cases that I've been following. Um, yeah. 
Thank you so much. And Jay Lewis here uh, sums up this talk pretty well. So what is the lesson for today's Christians, uh, especially those who are being attacked in places like Africa, Bethlehem, et cetera? Is the lesson that they must start fighting back? And how? Well, yeah, so the lesson of the book is not necessarily very applicable in this situation. Christians, as I cover in the Islamic world, Christian minorities are under attack. Um, fighting back is not very practical because they, they can't get the sorts of arms that are necessary. And if they do, then they are really dead uh, because they're, they're seen as barely tolerated dhimmis, okay? And, and we tolerate them as long as they just toe the line. Um, and of course, we attack and abuse them whenever we feel because they did something that annoyed us. Um, but if Christians were actually seen as trying to attack and fight Muslims or even defend themselves with arms, then the entire Islamic nation would rise up against them, including the military. So that's not really a practical or this isn't the same as the, the stories I'm talking about in Europe, where all the Europeans, that was their home and Muslims were invading and, they, and the, you know, the Europeans armed themselves and fought. Um, so I, do, I, I don't think that's um, practical for Christian minorities who are sometimes one or 2%. I mean, think about it in Pakistan, where they're under 2% and they're treated like garbage, to be frank. Imagine if they got guns and, or whatever and started saying we're defending ourselves. They'd be essentially obliterated. But I think the lesson is more applicable to the West in general, and because it is the West ancestors that we're discussing, um, in taking a firmer stance against Islamic aggression including in ways to help Christians and other religious minorities throughout the Islamic world, which would not require um, military um, intervention, just economic intervention. Think of all these nations that get so much monetary aid and depend on it from America. All, all the U.S. has to say is you need to improve your human rights or you get nothing, for example. And I guarantee you that would have a, a, a very uh, significant improvement in, their, in the lives of those religious minorities, but it, seldom does the U.S. do that except for show. Uh, so I think the lessons are more pertinent to the West and its Christians and non-Christians as well to basically take a firmer, bolder stance against unjust, unwarranted Islamic aggression. All right. Well, thank you so much. With that, we've come to the close of our webinar. Thank you, Mr. Ibrahim, for joining us today. Thank you. For our viewers, please be on the lookout for our weekly webinar offerings email coming out over the weekend. Uh, thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day. Oh, sorry, before we go, can you tell us where we can get your book? Oh, sure. Um, <laughs> it's actually right. It's right here because I was reading the quotes, um, Defenders of the West. You can get it if Amazon obviously has it, and it's probably the least expensive on Amazon. But if you just go on the Internet and put in the name Defenders of the West and my name, Raymond Ibrahim, you know, I'm sure you'll see a lot of other online sellers that you can choose from and also conservative reader.com is selling it thank you absolutely and i believe it's one of our gifts uh with a donation on our donation page all right well thank you so much again that's, that's all we got today have a good one